0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Cheryl Lynch of Cheryl Lynch Quilts. Cheryl started quilting in 1992 and is an award-winning quilter and published quilt designer. She enjoys devising solutions for creative projects. Her most recent innovation has been mini mosaic quilts that are suitable for young and old, as well as novice and experienced quilters. Cheryl sells her kits and projects in her Etsy shop at Cheryl Lynch Quilts on Etsy. She is offering Walshe Naps listeners a discount of 20% by using the coupon code WALSHYNAPS. Naps. Thank you so much, Cheryl Lynch of Cheryl Lynch Quilts. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 152 of the Walsh and Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a business in the sewing industry with my guest, Patty Palmer. Patty is the driving force behind the Palmer Pledge Publishing Company, which has published dozens of sewing books and how to DVDs. And she's also the creator of eight. Palmer Pletch Sewing Notions products, including Perfect Fuse interfacings. Patty has been designing for the McCall Pattern Company since 1980 and Vogue prior to that. She has written the guide sheets for over 250 patterns that include fit and sewing tips. Palmer Pletch workshops are offered in several cities around the country. And Patty's also excited that her daughter, Melissa Watson, is following in her footsteps, joining a number of talented young women new to the fashion sewing industry. So, Patty
1: Palmer, welcome. Well, thank you, Abby. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you. And so we're going to start way back in the beginning and hear a little bit about your um, background. And I wondered if you would tell us where you grew up.
1: Oh, that would take the entire rest of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Did you move around a lot? We did. I went to 12 different schools in 12 years but mostly in Oregon. Uh, My dad was a teacher and a coach, and then went into logging and we moved to Montana. Um, I just went to my high school reunion in Missoula, Montana, and that was my third high school. But uh, Hood River Valley, Oregon was one major location, and the Oregon coast another, and then Montana, the third one. Oh, wow. I loved it. I mean, I amazingly adapted really well. Just, I think I just sort of thought, well, I have no choice. <laughs> We're moving. We're going to a new school.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, did you have siblings?
1: Uh huh. Two younger brothers. Okay. And so, your dad works for me now and has oh. for about 30 years. <laughs> oh, wow. What does he do for you? Well, he used to run an import business. We imported with my late husband, we imported dinnerware from Italy. And then when we closed that operation, he just moved over to Palmer Pletsch and he runs the warehouse and operations and all the emails that get sent out to our customers uh, about new things that are happening. And, and when people sign up for workshops or whatever, they go through him. And and his name is George. and He's very friendly. And all the ladies, when they come to the workshops, they'd like to have him come over and see them, see him.
0: <laughs> and he loves it. Oh wow, that's great! Oh, I didn't realize that he worked with you. Um, okay, so um, so your dad was a teacher and a coach, and um, and then got into logging. That's really interesting. And what did what did your mom do? Was she a homemaker
1: or did she work as well? She was a homemaker because that was more or less what was allowed at that time. Right. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I figured as much. Okay, that's yeah, a good thing. I mean, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and so, did she know how to
1: sew? Did she teach you how to sew? Well, she sewed for me when I was little. And, and for some reason, when I was about nine or 10 and I started having an interest in sewing, probably through 4-H, um, she stopped sewing. And I don't know if that's, you know, sometimes people think, well, I don't want to be competitive with my child or whatever. Or maybe it was because we only had one sewing machine. I don't have a clue. I've, I never asked her. She died when she was 59. So I never thought about those questions at the time.
0: Okay. Interesting. So yeah, you got into 4-H and, um, and you did learn to sew some there. Is that right?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. It okay. was a great place.
0: Yeah. I, I've never, I wasn't involved in 4-H. That's not, I grew up in a suburban environment. And so 4-H was not something that my friends and I did. So what exactly did they, you know, did they teach you?
1: Well, I can speak from experience of being a leader for a 4-H club club that had a cooking and a sewing uh, unit, and I co-did that with another woman who was a home economist from Oregon State, uh, which is where I went to school, and um, we had 13 uh, gals from 7 to 9, and we alternated having a sewing session and a cooking session. And we always had projects that they would do, and we'd go to fabric stores and uh, talk about shopping for fabric. And uh, then they would enter a garment in, or a recipe or whatever in a uh, county fair. And if they went county fair, they went to state fair. And Melissa, of course, was probably the main reason that I decided to do this, because I thought it was a good, good experience for me, and I think it would be for her. And she actually entered one of her paintings in the fair and she won grand champion at the state fair which some is something that people want to win their entire lives and she was like nine (laughs) wow yeah yeah. she's
0: very artistically talented okay so you
1: she didn't do well though on her sewing project (laughs) a perfect perfect dress with a lace up front and she just got tired and she just put the two ends of the tubing lapped them and sewed across them and then laced up her dress and they couldn't really give her anything but a white ribbon for having that little raw edge just sticking out oh my goodness that's funny um it was um, i didn't intervene
0: right no right good for you for not intervening <laughs> so um so you were not only involved in 4-h as a kid but you were also involved as a mom it sounds like once you um once you had a daughter
1: yeah and and it's such a i mean if Anybody that lives near where they have county fairs, and then they probably have 4-H leaders that, you know, take on kids. So it's a great experience. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And then in high school, you were also the state debate champion for Montana.
1: Yes. And I just had dinner with my uh, partner in Missoula when I went there for our reunion last week. Wow. And, and she went on to be an attorney. <laughs> so... But I went on to be a public speaker and a writer, so I guess the debate uh, served us both well.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. You didn't go on to be an attorney, but you used a lot of those skills in the business that you did build.
1: Yeah, I think it's the reason I do what I do, actually. Really? We had, yeah, we had to do, you know, you had to prove a topic um, that the question that was uh, explored nationally like um, federal aid to education was one example and you had to be able to prove it was a good idea and prove it was a bad idea. So you really had to get your thoughts together and get your proof together. So we did a lot of research and really researching and hypothesizing is just what I do in writing sewing books or, or editing sewing books as well and um, and then we had to speak. so you know <laughs> those are the tools I think that made me more successful in the career that I chose.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when you were thinking about your career, um, I mean, I can't imagine that, well, maybe you imagined this particular career, but um, but maybe not. What What did you think you wanted to go on to do um, when you went off to college? Well, you know,
1: just like most young people, I had no clue, and I had <laughs> absolutely no clue that sewing... I mean, I used to enter contests and play my accordion, and I was rotten at it. I never thought you could enter clothing that you'd made until somebody won Miss America for being a a sewer. (laughs) Um, But I was a social, uh, what do you call it, social, uh, I can't think of the name of it. That's what I started with in college anyway, social work, I guess. And then I took a textiles class and a food science class. Nutrition class, and I was so fascinated with both that I moved over to home ec, and finished Oregon State with a clothing textile merchandising and design major in home economics, and uh, that so I that was setting me up for a career probably to be a teacher, but I didn't want to be a, a middle school or a high school teacher, so I sort of didn't go that direction, and my dean was not happy with me about that, but. Anyway, I just, I graduated in 1968 and that was when the sewing industry was growing by leaps and bounds, probably because of companies like Stretch and Sew, making sewing easy and teaching so many people. So when I got out of college, I went to Meyer and Frank first and um, got on their executive training program to be a buyer, but I didn't really
0: what was, Um, I don't know what Meyer and Frank
1: was. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know how there used to be department stores everywhere um, in the country, like they were homegrown and then May Company and Macy's and all those stores bought those department stores. Right. But Meyer and Frank was still Meyer and Frank. I think it had just been bought by May Company and I was a buyer trainee and eventually became a buyer, but I left in the meantime for a while and went to work for Armo Interfacing Company as an educator in the Northwest. And eventually after that, when, when those jobs started disappearing, I went back to the uh, company and created a um, corporate home economist position, and I ran a sewing school in five stores and bought Sewing Notions and brought in events for the store. But my Armo job is where I met Susan Pletch and we were, she lived in California, and we were asked to develop programming for all of the other 30 representatives around the country. And we had so much fun working together that eventually we started a business together.
0: Okay. So just backing up a little bit. So you worked at this department store as a sort of a trainee buyer um, in the sewing department. And that involved sort of um, choosing notions and fabrics that would be carried at the store and also educating um, consumers or sort of teaching classes at the store. Is
1: that correct? That's what I did when I came back to the store, but my first time I was hired right out of college, I was one of, I think, 10 out of 600 applicants for a job as a buyer trainee, but they could put you anywhere they wanted to, and I was in ready-to-wear, and I was in lingerie. Oh, I I see.
0: So actually just buying clothing. Learning to buy. Learning to buy clothing.
1: I could have been in housewares in China or something. (laughs) Right,
0: right. Okay. Got it. And then you took this other job at um, Armo Interfacing and what did they make? What was that?
1: Well, they were the largest, probably one of the largest, uh, other, other than Pellon, one of the largest interfacing okay. manufacturers in the world. And they sold to all the American uh, ready-to-wear companies. And uh, they just decided to go into home sewing and they had linings and underlinings and interfacings. They interfacings. Developed the first fusible interfacing, so I was a part of that whole movement. We used to call them bacon's because they weren't really very good. And eventually, they came out with weft interfacing, interfacings which were wonderful. But they eventually went bankrupt because all the interfacing, I mean, all the clothing construction went abroad.
0: Okay, right, but they did develop the first interfacing because before what, like 1968 or something, there was no.
1: Fusible interfacing is that right? I don't think I don't think there was um, I don't know Pellon might have you know with nonwovens it's pretty easy to calendar a fusing agent to a product they may have or they may have come out with it at the same time so I really can't answer that but I pretty well thought they were the first ones to do fusibles.
0: Okay, and, so it's yeah. hard. To, I mean, it's hard to imagine sewing without a fusible interfacing, but, um, but yeah. Okay. So, you know, right around that time period, let's say, um, that's when this product was developed and you were, you were, you know, working in the industry at the time that this product came about. And so did you travel around and teach people how to use it?
1: Yeah, that was our job. It was really to, um, show lots of different clothes that were made. I remember the, the first projects I had to make was a, coat a wool coat and I had to make it half of it like a summer coat and half of it is a winter coat. So when you looked inside you saw lamb's wool underlining in the winter side and you saw um, lighter weight products in the summer side and and in those days we had hair canvas and we did custom tailoring. So one side was custom tailored with hair canvas and the other side the summery side was using the early fusibles. Um, but it was it was an amazing experience and I will say that there were a lot of, there were probably 150 women traveling for the pattern companies, the notions companies, and the interfacing companies at that time. And the Armo girls, as I call, we call ourselves, we probably made the least amount of money, <clears throat> but we had the best time <laughs> because we could sew anything. We weren't just teaching how to put a zipper in. We could teach any kind of sewing techniques because we we're really talking about building a garment from the inside out. Wow, it's yeah,
0: so this must have been really good as far as like your training as a seamstress and as a tailor.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and we did couture techniques, we did lambs lambswool and hams, and I mean we just could do anything we wanted to, that's what was so much fun about it, and then teach it and include it in a program. Of course, uh, when you teach and you talk about their products, because you love them, it's really easy to train salespeople or teach consumers and we'd even go into high schools but that's that was about the time it was the late 60s and you know about the late 60s yeah. there was a lot of rebellion, and the high school kids they really didn't want to hear about <laughs> <so much> anymore <laughs> yeah so we sort of redirected but we did a, I did a lot went into a lot of high school, school net classes and talked and I think I'm kidding in a way but Uh, I could see the change coming. I might say it that way. <laughs> sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, you graduated in 19, you said 1968. So yeah, I mean, that that was a pretty crazy time in this country. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Um, okay. So I mean, but it does sound like you got a lot of like on the job training through these two different companies that you worked for over the course of those years. And and that was like a, a total of um, of 15 years or so that you spent Um, between these two different companies is that about right
1: the 1968 to 1976, I think. Right. So and,
0: and, you know, basically learning both sewing techniques and also teaching and, um, and, yeah, and buying like a whole lot of different sort of things that would come into play later. And as you said, you, you met your business partner, Susan Pletch. And so tell us a little bit about meeting her and about your relationship with her.
1: Oh <laughs> we just well we met you know at Armo and and then we were put together to develop programs so we worked closely together at her I usually went to her place because she was married and and I could just be gone longer and so we'd go to San Jose and we'd start developing <laughs> one of our first things was interfacing knits because knits were all of a sudden really popular and Uh, We wanted to underline them and all those things because that's what we did. It was sort of funny when I look back at it now. But we just had so much fun. And her husband would say, we're going out to dinner, and I don't want you two to talk sewing. (sighs) Well, we didn't really know what else to talk about. And so we'd sit there just totally silent, and all of a sudden, we just burst out something about sewing. (laughs) And then uh, not long after that, all of the companies no longer had educational representatives because they were it was too expensive. And the industry was changing uh, a lot. And so Susan was actually the last educator it, it, for the sewing industry in the United States. And wow. that was for Talon Al- Zipper Company. And she, um, her last, major job was going to every J.C. JCPenney store in the country and giving a talk to salespeople and consumers about interfacing or about zippers. Wow. And tell them. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: so that, I mean, that truly, this was in the mid to late seventies, it sounds like. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, pretty much early, before the mid seventies. And okay. I started it, I started back at Myron Frank in I think 1971. So I was just three years in the the traveling you know kind of part of the sewing industry and that's when I went back through and finished the training program to be a buyer and then um talked to them well they started a sewing school as well and then I talked them into making me a corporate home economist and I could do cooking sh- things and bring in people to do that as well so and just be then becoming a buyer but I got to go to New York twice a year every year and um uh, Loved New York City. It was fun. But I met all of... I went with a fabric buyer, and he was a big buyer and treated royally, and so I got treated royally right along with him. It was really fun. I bet. Yeah. Okay. So how did you and Susan
0: get this idea that maybe you should start a company together and strike out on your own? That seems like a really big step.
1: Well, she came to a show I put on, a big consumer show at Myron Frank, and she was sent there by Talon, but she also knew she wasn't gonna have a job pretty soon. And she said to me, Patty, you know, you wrote a pant book and now you're the one that knows how to sew ultrasuede better than anybody else because I was probably the first person in the United States to get a free cut of ultrasuede when it was brand new when they were selling it to department stores and and I had done a lot of classes on it and teaching on it and I said, Susie, I don't have time to write a book now. I'm traveling on every vacation or day off to other May Company stores and doing pant seminars because I'd written the pant book. And she said, well, tell me everything you know and I'll write it. So (laughs) I did. And she went back to San Jose and she uh, wrote an all word, no art or illustration, rough draft, and then came up to Portland and stayed at my little apartment and we pumped out the book boy, it was different then. We typed everything on a typewriter and pasted it up. And I drew rough art and she made it final art and we pasted that up and we used little zip tone things to c- create shading for the printer. But that said, every page was probably redone 20 times. And then the book comes out. <laughs> we proved it very thoroughly. The first sentence in the book said, Ultra suede is an amazing new fabric. Oh my gosh, <laughs> like no. <laughs> so much for proofing. But anyway, there's no such thing as a perfect book. Let me tell you that.
0: I want to take a minute now to talk to Cheryl Lynch of Cheryl Lynch
2: Quilts. My name is Cheryl Lynch and my business is Cheryl Lynch Quilts.
0: And what inspired you to come up with this idea of the fabric mini mosaic quilts?
2: a lot of my quilts are inspired by my trips and we were on a trip to Israel and we went to this amazing temple that was covered floor to ceiling with mosaics and I just love them but I didn't want to start a hobby with with stones and stuff like that so my goal was to figure out how to do it out of fabric
0: oh cool and so how is the how do you what is the process behind making the mini mosaic quilts
2: so I, I start using with, I start with batik fabrics, and I use batiks because they're tightly woven and it doesn't matter what, what side you use, and we all have lots of scraps of them if you're a quilter. So I cut them up into little squares, and I follow a pattern, and I place the little squares on sticky stabilizer using tweezers and a pair of scissors, not very fancy, and it's nice because it's low sew until you kind of get to the end of when you sandwich them like a quilt and quilt it.
0: Wow, so cool. What an innovative process. I love it. And the end result is so pretty. Um, what a neat process, Cheryl. So cool. So where can we go to try our hand at this? Because you've got some um, kits available so people can kind of give it a go and see how they like it.
2: Yeah, I sell them as kits or as patterns. So the kits include the batik fabric, the pattern pattern, if you just want to use your own scraps and I sell them in my Etsy shop and the URL is www.etsy.com slash shop slash Cheryl Lynch Quilts Oh
0: that's great thank you so much Cheryl we're gonna all go check it out thanks Abby thank you so much Cheryl and now back to my conversation with Patty
1: There's always something you're going to find. A perfect technical book, I right, say. Right, right. And really so does. this
0: was this book was all about Ultra Suede?
1: Yeah. Okay. In order to market it, we took out a half-page ad in Pattern Magazine, and we didn't have the money to pay for it. And she said, well, I'll have the orders come to a post office box in San Jose. So she <laughs> goes to the post office and walks in and... The post box was empty, and she just about cried, and then she, well, there was a note from the postmaster uh, come to the desk here. So she went to the window, and uh, he said, here's your mail. He gave her a big sack, oh, wow. totally full of orders. <laughs> and I think that those first orders paid for the ad and the printing, so we were pretty lucky because we really didn't have savings. <laughs> Right, but ultra
0: suede was such a huge trend at that time, right? So it, it
1: was it was huge. You it met was, market demand, and, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, so that was our first, our start, and then we did Mother Pletch's painless sewing with Pretty Patty's perfect and primer and Ample Annie's alphabet adequate artwork. That was our second book. <laughs> That's kind of name. yes, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And anyway, uh, that was successful. And then we came back to Portland and we did the tailoring book, the first tailoring book. And then I said, well, I need to, we need to redo the PAM book. Let's do it together. And so about that time, we officially formed our, uh, I think it was an S-corporation to start with, uh, of the two of us in Palmer Pletch <clears throat> Publishing. And that was sometime toward... Well, probably seventy nineteen seventy six or seventy seven.
0: Okay, right. And so it was a publishing company from the beginning. It was a a company about making books.
1: Right, and to promote the company, we <clears throat> she traveled first with Ultra Suede seminars, and then about a year later, I quit my full time job and and added Pants seminars. And but at that time, stores didn't want to you to come because we used to come free because we were paid for by a company right right
0: that was the, the model had changed right because the company previously was paying you was paying you, you were on the staff of the company of the interfacing company right. so you'd come and do a demo to promote their product but now you were on your own and so the store needed to pay you to come and they didn't want to do that
1: no and we'd sort of hold their hand and say you know we can't come and do it free because we have to pay our fare and expenses and all that so we decided okay we'll we'll tell you what you have a minimum number of people that you need to have and you charge this amount for them and then you can cover our costs but we'll take the risk and if we you know get instead of 30 people we get 200 people then we have a chance to make more money and, um, and that worked out actually very, very well. Cause I remember some times when we had, um, you know, 200 people and we might've made $5,000 that weekend, which in the late seventies was really a lot of money. Right. And, you know, you could easily pay your expenses out of that. And, uh, and then you had a risk of maybe, you know, it not working out so well or something happened and nobody could come, maybe a weather event or whatever, but it was going well for us, and we, we had a lot of demand. And then we ended up, by 1980, having nine of us traveling. And, and I did all, all the scheduling initially. <laughs> and, uh, well, Susie and I traded off. Neither one of us loved doing it because you'd have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to start calling the East Coast stores and, and stay until, you know, 6 or 7 at night and putting the schedule of... Nine hundred seminars a year for nine people,
0: wow, yeah, that's <laughs> and, like a lot of logistics, yeah, you need like a manager <laughs> like a yeah, yeah, <laughs> wow, well,
1: eventually we did one of our representatives took over the scheduling and the uh, promotion, but we used to run full page ads in Sonews, and Sonews was from Seattle, started in Seattle, and it was brand new, and we ran full page ads twice a year for six or seven or eight years I'm not sure and but we listed the schedule where we were going to be so everybody in the country that sewed that took so news they could see oh they're going to be in Davenport Iowa um, at this store or whatever and that really got people to our seminars right and so yeah in 1980 we did 900 wow. seminars in North America and eventually, we did seminars in Australia as well.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing amount of travel and um, definitely shows you the demand that was there. And um, and so it was really, at that point, it was a teaching company as well as a publishing company because the teaching was really probably equal <laughs> to the publishing. It wasn't just yeah. the publishing company. Yes.
1: Right. But right. All, of our te- all of us were, on the teaching part of it, um, except for Susie and myself, we put all of our teaching money into the company and we paid ourselves a salary, but all the other women were contract labor and they paid their own expenses. And I'd say for, from about 1980 to 1985, it was really, really good. And then the airlines changed the way they did business. And the only way you could get a decent airfare was to stay over a Saturday night. So it just changed this whole thing of hopping around for two or three weeks Mm. from one city to another city it just made that we couldn't do that anymore so that was the beginning of the end of the national, national traveling seminar show <laughs> right
0: yeah right exactly that had to change and then how did you meet um Marta um is her last name alto uh-huh. how did you meet her
1: uh, well back when I was at Myron Frank when I left uh, first um Joanne de Benedetto took my job and then Marta came in when she left and took her job and so she ran the sewing school at myron frank Um, but before that she came in as a custom dressmaker for the store i had introduced her to the store and said she can sew ultra suede (laughs) and and so she started doing ultra suede dresses and suits and clothes for men and women out of ultra suede for the store before she took on the job of running the education part of the store Um, and then she got married had children and um, eventually she came on as one of the traveling representatives doing ultra suede. And, but she and I, we actually taught together for a while at Mary Frank too. And, and that's uh, when I knew her skills or learned her skills in, in sewing and, and we just did more and more together. Okay.
0: <laughs> All right. And then, um, so Susan left the business in 1985. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, why she left?
1: Well, she had been happily married. No, I'll say not so happily married, divorced. And she wanted to be married again. She liked being married. And she said, we are too busy. And I don't have time to find a guy. <laughs> so
0: that's why she left. So the and life, she, basically, the lifestyle yeah. of this business was not matching the lifestyle she desired.
1: No, no, no. We were just gone all the time and busy all the time. And And she she was right. It wasn't a good thing to develop relationships, and she did. And she wanted to have a partner, a life partner, and she found that. And uh, she pretty much just retired from working period at that point, and she was pretty young. Um, But her main thing after that was she wrote a book called Smart Packing about traveling, packing for different kinds of trips, and it was very successful. But she had learned how to publish, and she knew how to write, and um, so it worked out. And we still see each other. We have, in fact, I'm having lunch with her next week. Nice. And she did. She settled in Portland and married a Portland guy.
0: <laughs> and what did it do for your relationships? I mean, it sounds like it was a very busy business. And was it hard for you?
1: You know, you take things in life when they come and you adapt to them. Um, but I will say, we were looked at, I'll just call it frickin' frac. <laughs> there they are again and we we, I think we set a pretty high standard in how you look when you teach and how the quality of your sewing is and and we in fact we used to have all of our reps come to Portland and we would go through fabrics from the different companies and we'd create our wardrobe twice a year for traveling and then everybody learned how to accessorize really well so we all looked really good when we traveled, and I really missed that camaraderie with Susan, but, you know, I didn't need it to go on, but I really missed working with her. And yet, you know, I understood what she you know, needed. It, was, it worked out just fine, and, but I'm, we are both feel very lucky that we got together in the first place.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just, I was wondering if it was hard for you on a personal way. I mean, I, I understand it was hard, it, what it was like for her to leave and then for you to have the remaining um, shares of the business but as far as like um, you know just your own personal relationships like finding a spouse and um, you know just f- maintaining your own friendships and things like that because I know I own a business as well and it can be hard to have that work-life balance you know um, and it sounds like for Susan it, it wasn't working out um, so I'm wondering if, it, if during those busy years um, in the mid-80s when there was so much travel and logistics and all of that whether that was hard for you.
1: Well, I was married during that time, but my husband lived in Chicago, then New York, and then L.A. before he moved back to Portland. And by the time he moved back to Portland, I was 38, I think. So we got married in 1977, and so that was before Susan left the business. And But it worked out for me because he was the national sales manager for a company, And he could go anywhere I was going, but I had to schedule my, uh, make my schedule like six months in advance, but he could go somewhere, you know, just by calling and saying, Hey, I need to see some of our clients. (laughs) So we saw each other quite a bit. So it didn't, that traveling didn't affect my personal life. Uh, And by the time she quit, he had moved back to Portland and yeah, I don't, but I still traveled, so I don't know why I did that, but I did. <laughs> but it worked out for us, I guess, because we had a different relationship from the beginning, you know, not being in the same city. Right. Okay. So your
0: lifestyle, it wasn't as affected. I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that makes sense. So so now you had the full business on your own. Um, and it sounds to me kind of like Marta, um, she's been with you for a really long time and in, and in some way... In some ways, both she and your daughter, um, they didn't become your partners per se, but they kind of um, became
1: partner-like in different ways. Is that accurate? Well, I think what made Marta and myself work out so well is Marta hates anything to do with management. She, in fact, when she was at Myron Frank running a custom sewing department, they wanted her to hire other people. And have her just do the designing and meeting the customers. And she didn't want anything to do with that because she just doesn't like that. She just likes to sew. And she doesn't like to write, but she is very good at coming up with ideas. And so that's where we got together, I think, more than anything else. We started teaching workshops together on fit and so forth. And, and she'd come up with ideas more from her background. I mean, she was a, a costumer. Taught costuming at San Francisco State <clears throat> for a while after college. And so she'd say, Oh, Patty, you don't need to do that dart. Just smoosh it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little dart. <laughs> just smoosh it out. <laughs> and of course, that's not how I was taught in HOMAC <laughs> at Oregon State. So um, we sort of blended ourselves together. But, you know, I'd say, Marta, I want you to write a fit book with me. And she'd go, Oh, okay <laughs> and she'd get into it and the first fit book we went to New York and we um, met with a lot of people trying to find out the history of pattern sizing and then we had interesting opportunities to see a pattern collection and figure it out ourselves and but she doesn't write anything about it but she helps me with ideas so um, and if I asked her to write a book she'd say no thank you <laughs> but if I said will you do a book with me. Yes, she'll do that. Right, so and, she's almost like an idea is
0: like a counterbalance with you.
1: Yeah. Well, I call her the R&D department. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and sometimes I'll actually come up with an idea myself but <laughs> I have to say most of the time it's probably smart. <sighs> I mean, she came up with the Y-Bust adjustment, for example, where you can add a little extra width through the lower armhole and in, but she said, well, just if, it, if you have to add an inch and a half or more in width for your bust, then do a Y bust adjustment and put half of it in the bust area and half of it in the armhole area. And I'm not I'm not seeing that that really is working very well. And so I said, you know, I think I've figured out how you can figure out how much you need in the armhole area. You just fold the pattern tissue in that area, and bring it to your center front. And does it does the stitching line go all the way over to the crease in your armhole? Well, if it doesn't, measure the distance, and that's how much you add at that spot. And she does give me credit for figuring that out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's I, how we work together. Yeah, I mean, we, we fine tune something. I mean, we might she might get a brilliant idea, and then we'll work together fine tuning it but she doesn't she's never been on salary with Palmer Platt. she's always been a contractor and um gets royalties of course on the books and and she does DVDs and we give her a good royalty for that and then when she travels and teaches or if she helped me with the Pialop show uh she got paid for that but she doesn't want to have a job
0: <laughs> right she has she has a sort of defined um arena that she's interested in and that's yeah. it right okay well, those boundaries are there, and that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um
0: And I, I wanted to talk about um, this pattern that you released in 1980. Um, it was a pattern for an eight-hour blazer, mm-hmm. and it was featured in Family Circle magazine, and it was in that year that John Malloy wrote this book called Dress for Success. Um, Mm -hmm. And this was a book that told women to wear blazers in order to climb the corporate ladder. I think this is a Mm -hmm. time, you know, people who maybe, myself included, weren't, um, you know, in the workforce in 1980. It's a little bit hard to sort of remember or understand what that time period was like. But, um, but this was, uh, you know, a time when women were sort of Getting ready to, you know, try to um, bust through that glass ceiling and um, wear, you know, corporate uh, attire and suits and blazers. And so you had this pattern for this eight-hour blazer and it sold, this is an amazing statistic to me, it sold a million copies, this pattern, in, in the first year that it was released, which, I just can't imagine a pattern today selling a million a, a million copies. That's a, just a, a fantastic statistic. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that success. And, I mean, that seems like a, a really big breakout success for a single pattern.
1: Well, I hadn't thought about it until now, actually. But we were at Vogue between 1975 and 1980. And actually, our Vogue fit patterns, the dress fit and the pant fit, Still were in the Vogue catalog until 1985, even though we started with McCall's in, in 1980. Um, and we had done a jacket pattern. I had nothing, I had no knowledge of John Deloy at that time. And I think his book was published in the late 70s. And I didn't discover it until after this pattern was such a success and I had to figure out what was the reason. But we were. At Vogue, and had they had a new manager come in, and she didn't like our contract, I think is what the problem was. And she fired us, and we had developed the same pattern for Vogue um, in a different twist, but that doesn't matter here. Uh, so when we went to McCall's, we took the, the idea and said we want to do a pattern. And our main reason was we wanted to use fusible interfacings, machine buttonholes, something to make it more contemporary and um, a faster project to sew as well and in fact <laughs> the design director McCall's when we were presenting it he says you want bound buttonholes in a jacket that's supposed to be fast and we said well yeah and he said well have you noticed and ready to wear now um, all of the buttonholes are machine we said okay <laughs> we'll do machine <laughs> and so the pattern came out and when it came out there literally were no blazers or suits available for you know that style suit available for women on the in the ready-to-wear market if there were you know it wasn't very evident so the first week it just took the whole industry by surprise because they always shared their numbers on the sales of their patterns they didn't about 10 years later but for at that time they paid a company to give them the figures and it sold like 15,000 the first week. Wow. At that time, uh, in a month, in a new pattern, they might sell 2,000. And this sold 15,000 the first week. Next week, like 25 more. And the next week, like 50. I mean, it was just like crazy. And when we switched to McCall's, we had a much larger company behind us in sales. Vogue had 3% of the market, and McCall's had close to 40%. Simplicity Mm -hmm. was a little ahead of McCall's. And so I'd go to the United Red Carpet Club in Chicago and check in, and they'd say, oh, you did that blazer. (laughs) And like, they knew who I was.
0: Wow, that's crazy.
1: It it was. So it was an anomaly. Right. Is that right? That's right. Um, (laughs) And it, I mean, I don't think that has ever happened since actually it was just timing is everything just like our ultrasuede book yeah timing that, is it, everything
0: that's right yeah
1: yeah so and it's you can't always predict that you're there at the right time or I've had that happen three times in my career the ultrasuede book timing we've sold close to a million copies of that book but it we had pre-sold 50 no that was the surgery book no we hadn't pre-sold any on the ultra Suede book except for the ad but it took off like crazy. And then the surgery book, um, Gail Hamilton from McCall's called me and said, Patty, there's this machine that really is going to be hot. It's called an overlocker or whatever. And I said, oh, I hate machines. (laughs) I don't want to do a book on that. And she said, well, you really should. So she, she knew, um, well, you know, a future trend was going to be. So I took a surgery part and put it back together and learned how it worked. And, they were sort of harder in those days because you had to turn the tension dial up to 14 twi- times around. And, um, it you know, it, but the timing when it came out, that one we had 50,000 pre-sold.
2: Wow. Which makes your
1: printing more efficient because the larger numbers you print, the less it, it costs. And that just didn't stop. And we still have that same book. It, you know, we've upg- updated a little bit, but we ha- still have it in our line, if you can imagine. That was printed when 1985, I think. And um, then the eight hour blazer was the other one. And that was really something we were totally unaware that John Beloy had done that book. (laughs) But that had to be it because it was, he did a little before 1980, but it was becoming more and more popular because women, he just said, you can't break the glass ceiling unless you wear a suit to work. (laughs) And that stuck (laughs) for people.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely, it definitely did. St- I mean, you, you know, it definitely did stick. I mean, it's it's still... I think it still uh, holds true, but, um, uh, so I didn't realize that sergers hit the consumer market in 1985, so prior to 1985, there were not sergers, is that?
1: Oh, no, there were, but they were all industrial. But they
0: surgers. were, right, there weren't sergers for the average consumer to go purchase.
1: Not something for the home sewing market. Wow, and I, I didn't sure know that. Juki, Juki was probably the first, but Juki was a big producer of, Commercial sergers, and I think they must have seen that there might be a market in a home sewing market, and so they made a little serger, and then Baby Lock uh, made one. Uh, let's see, Baby Lock, a white sewing machine company, made some of the early sergers, and then they went from there.
0: Right, and you showed people what it was, what was what it was capable of doing by writing this book.
1: Well, and in 1985, just. About the time the book was coming out, I think that's when it came out. Yeah, must have been because that was our. We stopped doing traveling workshops pretty much. Mm-hmm. We still had a few gals that did some traveling, but uh, we decided to do workshops in Portland, and surgery was our first. And we actually had forty people in a class sitting at tables. All they needed was a space for their surgery and their notebook, and they made notebook samples. And we had or five teachers and we had a surgery mechanic uh there during the four-day workshop and, and <laughs> it was just absolutely crazy and then we i bet had, you know, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then they all this creativity was you, could, you know suddenly you could surge with all kinds of interesting threads and do decorative work so we added a second surgery workshop called creative surgery and um, all these same people came back and <clears throat> We had sewing machine dealers take the you know class because we had really done a lot um, learning ourselves. And we have a couple of surgery DVDs. And one of my, the first one I love because we have a close up of a surgery forming a stitch that is so close up, it's really fun. <laughs> and we started out in slow motion and then we speed it up to mm, a super fast. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: always so educational to watch. And yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then um, you, I mean, we would be uh, remiss if we didn't talk about the tissue fitting method. So you have developed this very um, unique method of fitting where you skip over making a muslin, which I think is revolutionary. And instead you use the tissue as the muslin um, and make kind of all of the, um, the sort of edits to the pattern, the, the slash and spread and everything else to the actual tissue. And then once that's all, um, sort of ready to go, then you go straight to the fashion fabric. And this is really, I mean, I, I, you know, this seems very (laughs) time-saving, um, and very interesting. So I, I wondered if you could talk about, Sort of how it sounds like you and Marta developed this together, and I'm wondering if you could talk about um, that process and, and sort of how it really revolutionized or changed the process of fitting a pattern, um, and and you know what it does for people when they realize that they don't have to make a muslin.
1: Well, some people still want to make a muslin. <laughs> We're sort of
0: like, because, yeah, I mean, it's like anathema, right? Like everybody's like
1: told you must, you must. So, yeah. And it's having, you know, and I I might make a muslin if I was making a very fitted bridal gown out of really expensive fabric and I just wanted to make sure, but honestly, you really don't need to. And even in that case, in fact, when we were sewing for our our, uh, bridal gown book, um, Marta, tissue fitted the models and made the wedding dresses and everything turned out perfectly, you know? So, um, you know, it takes a while to learn, but it's an amazing way to get an amazing fit. And people may have to come to a workshop or something, you know, just to see it in action. And then they become believers, but there are skeptics, but it all started when Mart and I were at Myron Frank in the seventies and we taught classes and we did try the tissue on people. And in a college textbook, it showed trying it on and checking for width and length, like waist length or whatever. And that's probably where we first saw it, which gave us even the idea. But we saw that we could take it further. And if, and we also saw that it was easier to get the right fit by taking a high-bust measurement rather than the full-bust measurement. Because full-bust can be anywhere from an A cup to, you know, an F or whatever. And that's going to throw off the fit for the shoulders and the neck and the chest area. And so, and actually, in 1887, I think it was, James McCall, in a pamphlet we found in New York, that's how he measured people. And he was the founder of McCall Pattern Company. And Ebenezer Butterick did the same thing. They took what they, what we call the high bust measurement, but they called it the bust measurement. And Marta and I now think that term probably came from sculpture where you have a shoulder bust figure of, you know, of a person because he called it the bust. And for men, you're supposed to measure across the chest. And he called that the breast measurement, but he mm-hmm. called the upper one for women bust. So we were onto something that we didn't even know really was how they started telling you to buy patterns. So Martin and I, then decided well then we need to figure out a way to get the bust cup size right and so we came up with that alteration and and then everything else I mean eventually we learned oh okay you have to start at the back you can't start at the front because if you have a broad back and you do that alteration first you're going to get more width all the way around so we had to figure out a way to get the best the best to fit on a person but it really was easy by just you know cutting into the pattern and spreading it till it fit the width and then part of that alteration is getting a little extra length because you need two things you need width to go around the fullness and you need length to go over it because the bigger the bust is the more length you need and you end up with a deeper dart which that alteration you know does all those things so and then we just kept teaching classes in the workshop well actually we traveled with gingham shells in different sizes and tried those onto people for years And we hadn't done hands-on, but we learned a lot from that. And so when we got back to doing the hands-on workshops, I think 1989 was our first fit workshop, and we had everybody make a muslin. And after the four days, we're like, what were we doing? They didn't get to fit any fashion. The muslin took all the time, but they went home with a perfect muslin, but what are they gonna do with that? Right. Well, I mean, they learned from it, that's fine. But then we thought, okay, we're just gonna go right into tissue fitting like we do for ourselves. And that was a big thing because uh, we hadn't done it in an actual workshop situation hands-on. So here we were, faced with fitting all these different body types in tissue, and it worked fabulously. And at the end of the four days, they got lots of different fashions, tissue-fitted, and some of them cut out of fabric and pin-fitted, which is the second step to, quote, tissue-fitting. Um, yeah, it, it it works really well, but there are naysayers, I will say. I bet. Just go, just, I don't know if I should say this, but it was really funny. The Amazon, one of the early reviews on our book from Amazon mm-hmm. was by a teacher, a guy that teaches um, uh, design in a college, and oh, I've never seen a worse review in my entire life. Oh, gosh. <laughs> He couldn't wait to send the book back and get a refund. <laughs> and I found out who he was. I even wrote. And I just said, you know, I know that this book wouldn't serve you because you're a designer. You're drafting patterns. But I said I had another guy come um, and take a workshop, and he felt the same way. But then when he drafted patterns for some of the ladies in the class, which I suggested he do, and came back, he still had to alter, you know, fit, fit them and so he learned a great skill for teaching kids that maybe go on into altering or custom sewing, not just drafting their own patterns, but I've never heard back from him.
0: Right. Um, but he just but- like could not get past
1: Oh, he just said. Oh, he said the worst things about the book. I've never (laughs) never, said. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah, yeah. He recommended a better book at the end. Oh, sure, sure. Right. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, right. I mean, there's going to be naysayers, as you said, because it is it is really a different idea um, than the way that you're classically taught. And and you, I mean, I think have really classical training. I mean, you're you know you're old school as they would say (laughs) it's not as though you're somebody who you know came in out of left field and you know just sort of threw it all together you know like you're somebody who really has excellent skills um as does marta and so um you know the idea that you um, you know changed this process uh, was very conscious, you know, it was very careful and thoughtful. It wasn't as, you know what I'm saying? It, yeah. it, it's not as though you, you know, when you think of the analogy to somebody who's doing an abstract painting, but it sort of skipped over their classical training of like, you know, learning to render something realistically first, like you already have that, <laughs> that in place. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, so, so your choice to make something abstract was, was not because you couldn't make it realistic it was because you wanted
1: to make it this way you know something that um, you're I'm sure a lot younger than me and when I was in college this is really interesting when we look back at it because we had never thought of this until more recently but in our college classes everybody was an hourglass figure so we were all born after World War II and in the 50s Things just were really, we didn't have processed foods and all that kind of stuff. And kids were a size 10 or a size 12 or a straight size 14 or whatever. And in college, we read the book on how to alter, but we didn't really practice it because people were pretty much like the pattern size. And then in the real world, as we started teaching, especially getting into the 1980s, 1990s, People were not exactly like the pattern. And so you had to be creative and develop something that was going to work for people and be a little bit easier. So, yeah, and I think that verifies what you're saying. But it, we did come from not really learning much about fit. We learned more to draft a pattern or drape a pattern or something like that in those classes.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of your sort of mottos, right, is like real clothes for real people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that fits right in there, right? Like, yes, it's, it's, it's real and, and and real in a number of, of different ways. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, um, has it been a challenge for you as you've gotten um, into the 2000s and embracing um, sort of keeping your business relevant and embracing some of the changes that have taken place in media. Um, since you do have a media company, a teaching company, and so much has changed with the internet. Um, and I know you've become a really good photographer um, and sort of, you know, took that on yourself um, and uh, got into doing video. Um, but I'm just uh, wondering about, I know you're blogging, um, <laughs> but uh, but has that been hard for you or have you been excited by that or, or how has that
1: felt? Well, I love technology and I pushed our company to go digital from you know pasting up things and that was really a hard thing for everybody to learn but I, we did it a long time ago and my design director can do anything now just about she's we you know illustrator photoshop in design she's very proficient and then melissa when she moved to new york um early on she took classes in adobe products at fit on weekends And really learned this, and she adapted much quicker than any of us to those skills. And even I can do Photoshop and InDesign. I'm not very good at Illustrator, but all of it is, I felt early on, is so necessary. I didn't necessarily know where else to go with it other than publishing books. But um, sometimes things just happen for a reason. Melissa decided to quit her job and start a different business and also come more into the sewing industry, even though she'd been designing for McCall's for quite a while, but she said, mom, your book need, your new fit book needs to look more modern, and she said, I'll design it for you, and I'm going, well, okay, but I have a design director, right, <laughs> and but Linda was very gracious, <laughs> uh, well, maybe a little hurt at first, but she was very gracious, and so Melissa just took charge, and she came up with a, a whole different look in the art, and yet clear still, because that was important, but not just, you know, a vintage art style or something, but a new art style that is very different than our former, which I think is good, too. But, you know, there's the look that you have to have. And then she wanted to hire a um, fashion artist. And I said, well, okay. And I thought she'd interview somebody in New York. Well, she went on to Adobe's site and looked into their portfolio area. And she picked a an artist who lives in Russia. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I like her style, she says, and then she, you know, d- did all the layout and designed the cover and everything, and, and it does have a, a very modern look, and I, I've learned that new word, new old word, modern, <laughs> because um, even our interfacing packaging was beautiful, but one of her friends said, oh, it just doesn't look modern, so Melissa redesigned all of our interfacing package, <laughs> packaging, And we have these tall, skinny, long-legged figures on the packages now, very uh, high-fashion art kind of style. And Marta says, because it's her interfacing line with me, she says, it's not about legs. (laughs) And I said, I know, Marta, but we like it, right? (laughs) And we do. So Melissa was a big factor there. And she also, at the same time, decided to redo our website And brought in Paula Daniels, who's from the New York area, to work on SEO and um, and helping with the technical part of the interface of the website, which Melissa designed. And so Paula's the one that said, "Okay, Patty, you have to go look at blogs, and you have to comment on blogs." And I'm I'm thinking, I don't even know how to get into a blog. (laughs) Social media was not my forte at all. But I've gotten into it. I opened a Facebook account, opened one for Palmer Platch, and um, now we see Instagram is just like the hot thing. Probably by the time anybody re- listens to this, it'll be the next three hot things. But we get so much response from the from social media, and I love going and and joining a chat room and interacting in the chat room and trying to be sort of in the background. Um, but, you know, if somebody asks a fit question, I'll answer it. And I like to go on blogs, and if somebody's doing something amazing, I like to tell them that. And they're usually quite amazed that I'm telling them <laughs> And And that's fun. And now <laughs> we just put a new blog on our website about I made Melissa's uh, blazer jacket. And the one, the first response I got was, I'm using this jacket in teaching my classes. And thank you for doing a traditional jacket. And by the way, what's the brand of your shoes? (laughs) (sighs) That's awesome. And you
0: know, your blog gets lots
1: of comments. People are totally on
0: there talking to you. I was really impressed because it's hard to get blog comments these days. But people are really excited that you're blogging. That's funny, I didn't know that it was hard to get caught it is it is but not not from you people are people are totally happy to talk to you. It's really lovely so um and I know um i I, I know that you go to Pilates because uh, yesterday we did a little practice on Skype and you had just come back from Pilates. Do you go to Pilates often?
1: I started about three months ago and I belong to an athletic club and I one day decided you know i'm doing yoga i just go and exercise on my own and i'm just not making any progress <laughs> and i'm sort of that apple figure i'm not as much as i was but i've i've lost a little bit but i thought everybody in pilates has an hourglass figure there must be a reason <laughs> i found out there is a reason <laughs> a lot of hard work yeah And I mean, really, anything that uses your stomach muscles or Mm -hmm. your obliques or whatever, you work on for an entire hour. And the first time you hurt like crazy, you don't even ever want to go back. But I've stuck with it. And I'm now actually holding my stomach in because I think my stomach knows there's muscles there that can do that. (laughs) But I haven't achieved the hourglass yet. But I just can't wait to wear one of Gertie's dresses. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, the 50s with the waistline and the full. (laughs) But you know what's exciting? I had two 30-somethings in our fit workshop about a year ago. And they were both bigger gals, young, so they still were a little hourglassy, but they were definitely bigger gals. And they wanted to make a dress like that. And at first they wanted to make our fitted sheath. And I said, you know, you're not going to like that. And so I said, how about this dress? And we have a 1947 dress, shirt dress that has a flared skirt. And she said, oh, I've been wanting to make that dress. Well, let's do it here. Let's fit it and cut it in fabric and do it. They both looked darling in the dress. The dress fit really, really well. And they have no self-image problems at all about being little heavier and wearing a dress like that showing everything well
0: if it fits and, well that's what it's all about you know if it well, fits it was, well yeah. and the color is good and like the print is flattering then you look yeah. awesome
1: and you i mean they just carried so much confidence in wearing those dresses and i think this generation's self-image is much better than ours had, you know was being a baby boomer and um i that was so good to see and that's they also awesome. taught me So i listened to everybody and she says I would love to get your DVDs, but I don't own a DVD player. And I'm going, really? <laughs> yeah, nope. Uh, really? So we are going to be streaming our DVDs from our website. Um, and we just haven't had time to get it done yet. But Good it should move. be coming by, by fall. That's, <laughs> well, by that's the end great. of fall. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: great. Um, And I know you also recently sold your, your house, your big house, um, and moved and then moved again to a little condo. Um, Uh And so you've got a little tiny sewing space now. And I'm wondering um, how that's been going for you (laughs) with a, with just a little sewing space, which I think is actually pretty relatable because I think most people have a pretty small sewing space rather than the beautiful, huge
1: one you used to have. Well, you know, I sort of feel good about being a real person in my sewing room aspect now. (laughs) And I just did a blog of my new sewing space um, in this place. And I got lots of comments, you know, just about, oh, I've been wondering what to do or I'm going to downsize. In fact, yesterday we were getting ready to go out to dinner, but I had about an hour. And I thought, oh, I want to cut out this little top because I had this idea. And it was a shorter version of our new pattern, McCall's 7979 or something. It's a big oversized cut of top and hugs around your hips. But I always wanted to make it a very simple little short top. I, where am I going to cut it out? I can't clear off my computer for just a short time. So I set my cutting board folded in thirds on the um, ma- uh, bannister mantle, I mean the, <laughs> what do you call it, the railing, uh, going across the loft and down the stairs. And it actually worked to cut out the small top. <laughs> so I took a picture of it. I thought, I'll just keep keep up with the ideas on the blog. Yeah. it perfectly fine. As long as I didn't step backwards and fall down the stairs. <laughs> I worried about
2: that.
0: <laughs> Sewing-related hazards. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that's like, you know, keeping it real. That's what it, that's what yeah. it looks like, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. And it's fun. I mean, it it really has been more challenging. And in a way, I was always alone on the third floor. And that, you know, here, in fact, Paul actually is not as happy as when we were renting across the street because that was on one floor. And I was sewing in the dining room, the living room, the kitchen, you know, whatever. And he was right there. And now he sort of misses me. He's downstairs in the TV area. And when are you going to be done sewing? I said, well, and I'm sewing in our office, in the loft and everything. And I said, you know what? Are you missing because I'm not sewing on the same floor with you? <laughs> and he said, I guess so. But before, for all the years we were married, I, I was up on the third floor sewing. And he never, ever saw me make anything. Mm. And when I was making the jacket from Melissa's pattern, which is a serious blazer, and he's going, wow, that takes a lot of concentration and you just keep sticking to it. And I'd save handwork that I like doing and to do when we were watching TV or something. But he saw the entire process. He was bowled over that I could do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in some ways, there's positives of, of having our work be right in front of our family. So they actually get an a inkling of what it consists of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's good. Yeah. So everybody out there that has to sew in their dining room table, it's... It's, it's helpful. Yeah, not the worst thing. In the
0: world. <laughs> well, Patty, thank you so much for taking the time to be on
1: the Walshine Apps podcast. I really enjoy talking with you. Well, thank you. And I have to say I'm impressed you've really done your homework because you know a lot about me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that means a lot to me. So thank you. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps Podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshknapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Cheryl Lynch Quilts. Cheryl's mini mosaics are available as both patterns and kits, along with a cutting guide to cut the fabric into small pieces. Themes range from transportation to flowers, to animals, to bugs and bees. You can find these items in Cheryl's Etsy shop at Cheryl Lynch Quilts on Etsy, or ask for them at your local quilt shop. Cheryl is offering my listeners a discount code of 20% by using the code WalshyNaps at checkout. If you have any questions, you can reach her via email at oivequilts at yahoo.com. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much.